The following sermon is from Evangel Temple Youth Ministries. For more information about how you can get involved, please visit etchurch.org forward slash youth. Well, like Pastor Isaac said, my name is Isaiah Jesh. I'm one of the pastors here at ET. Uh, my title is Pastor of Teaching and Spiritual Formation, um, so I usually oversee things more related to the adults, and uh, in kids' ministry, I work with Pastor Malia, my wife, so a lot of you guys have graduated out of ET Kids, and you know us um, from Kids Church on Sunday mornings, but I'm glad to be here tonight. Pastor Isaac, thank you for letting me uh, preach this evening. I'm really excited to be able to speak to you guys, and uh, we're going to continue the series that you guys have been in called Belief. We're looking at the Apostles' Creed. And so we're going to uh, kind of continue on from right where we were last week with Pastor Isaac, just keep going in that. Um, as Pastor Isaac has been clear in noting, we're not preaching the Apostles' Creed, right? We're preaching from the Bible, we're using the Apostles' Creed as kind of this framework, this guide that's going to guide our ideas week by week. We're looking at uh, an idea that's been distilled into a few words, and then we're unpacking that from the scriptures. And so we're going to do the same thing here tonight. We're going to hear what the scriptures have to say, but we're going to do that from the context of the creed. So I understand that Pastor Isaac's been having you guys recite the creed each week together, right? Is that what we're, we're doing? We're trying to see how well our teamwork can, can do? Okay. So we're going to do that this evening. If you want to stand up and recite that with me, we've got it on the screen. So we'll kind of read together. I can tell you in kids' church, the girls always read better than the guys. So is that the same here? Yeah, okay. All right. Well, let's see. Let's see how we do. Uh, we'll start at the top. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Nice. Very good. You can have a seat. This side definitely did better. They were right on top of it. That was good. All right. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. You guys read that. You acted like you'd heard it before. That's great. So I think you've been listening for the last couple weeks. Very good. Well, our focus tonight is on one of the most controversial parts of the Apostles' Creed. This might be why Pastor Isaac asked me to come in here and preach tonight. So if there's a lot of kickback, I get in trouble and not him. But we're going to talk about these two phrases. He descended to hell, and on the third day, he rose again. So we've got two ideas here in these phrases, and we're going to cover both of them this evening in our time together. Now, I do want to give you a little bit of the historical context for the creed. Um, I love studying church history. I love deep dive into things like this. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of that. But I, I want to remind you the focus of our time together is not on the creed. right? The focus of our time together is on the scriptures. What does God say in his word? So we're going to unpack that from the Bible. We're going to talk about Christ's death and his resurrection and what that means for us. But I do want to tell you a little bit about this phrase and why we're reciting it tonight. 
As you know, the Apostles' Creed is not found in the Bible, right? We're not going to flip through here and find the Apostles' Creed on a, um, right in the middle of Peter's letters or John's letters or anything like that. This is something that developed after the time of the New Testament, but it developed very quickly after the New Testament was written. So the earliest reference we have to the Creed was found in the 2nd century. So that's in the 100s, right? So this is really, really early. We have a letter written from one guy to another guy, and he refers to the creed that's being recited in Rome, which develops into what we call the Apostles' Creed. So that's early 2nd century. You move forward a little bit. The earliest copy we have, we actually have a copy on a fragment of the Apostles' Creed that comes to us from the 4th century. That's in the 300s. The version that we're reading today developed in the 5th century and kind of modified and changed into its current form up to the 8th century. So all that to say, this is a really, really old creed, right? This is something that developed very early in church history, was being recited in the churches, and has been a part of the church's uh, worship to God and the unity of the church since nearly the very beginning of the church on earth. So this goes back a really long way. It's become a very useful summary of what we would consider to be orthodox or true or right teaching about the Christian faith. But the Apostles' Creed is just a framework. It's just a guide to unpacking deeper Christian doctrines. Just what we read there is not enough unless we understand what each of these phrases mean. We have to dig into that and understand when we say we believe he died, well, what do we mean by that? What do we mean he died? Well, I mean, lots of people die. Everybody is going to die. So what's special about confessing the death of Jesus Christ? The Apostles' Creed is not a self-sufficient authority. It's not belief in the Apostles' Creed that saves. It's not reciting the Apostles' Creed that saves, right? So in here, we just all read this together, and it's not now that you've recited it, you're instantly a Christian. You're holy, you're perfect, everything is good before God. The creed doesn't work that way. It's not the ultimate authority for us. The Bible, the scriptures, which I hope you've brought the Bible with you this evening. We're going to look at this text tonight. But the Bible is our ultimate authority. It corrects, it, it reproves, it guides every other authority. So the Apostles' Creed is a secondary authority. It's being corrected and it's being guided by the Bible. So here's our first phrase tonight that we're going to look at. He descended to hell. I want you to see two passages before we get into our main text this evening. If you're on, let's say, the right half of the room over here, and if you've got your Bibles, how many have a Bible? Great. we got some Bibles. If you don't, there's a couple over here, and I think a leader would hand them out. If you want to slip your hand up, someone will get one to you. But if you've, this half of the room, okay, if you've got a Bible, flip to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, okay? If you're on this half of the room, flip to John 19. John 19, okay? If you've got a Bible, John 19. We're going to look at two verses out of there. Each week in this series, when Pastor Isaac has been preaching, I know that he keeps taking you back to the Bible as the authority. And he explains each phrase from the Bible. He's unpacking it from Scripture, right? So that's what we're going to do tonight. Now, when Pastor Isaac and I first talked about this series, we actually discussed uh, this series before he even started it. We read through the Creed. We were talking about it. And we were working through this idea of should we leave this phrase, he descended into hell in the Creed. And have you guys say that every single week. And we talked this through because, as I said, the, the Creed's not in the Bible, right? So there's actually different versions of the Apostles' Creed, and some of them don't have this phrase in it. Some of them change the words a little bit. And so we said, well, this is the historical creed. This is what goes back the farthest. This is what the church has recited. But 
is it something we want to recite in ET Youth? And we ended up deciding, yes, it is. There's something important here. There's a biblical truth we want you to understand. And so we're going to leave it in there, and then we're going to have the opportunity to unpack it and explain it to you. So let's be really clear, though, about what we believe about Christ's death on the cross. So if you're in Luke 23, we're going to listen to some of the words of Jesus on the cross, speaking to the thief who's next to him, who repents on the cross and places his faith and trust in Jesus. So someone in Luke 23, what does verse 43 say? If you got 43, someone read nice and loud for everybody to hear. Yeah, very good. Thank you. He says, truly I say to you, he's talking to the thief who's dying next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, when Jesus died on that cross that day, he's telling us where he's going to be next. He's going to paradise, right? The thief, when he dies on the cross that day next to Jesus, he gets to go be with Jesus where? Paradise. Paradise. Jesus did not go down physically into hell. I I know this could be really complicated, so look right at me, listen closely. Paradise and hell are not the same things, right? Paradise and hell are not the same things. And Jesus says, today when I die, today when you die, you will be with me in paradise, right? Jesus didn't have to go down into hell when he died. He didn't go down and fight Satan. Anyone ever heard the old uh, Carmen song, Champion? Anyone? Man, you guys are so young. Okay, I got one. Okay, you got, man, Parker, really? All right. So this was was popular when I was, your dad, yeah, okay, thanks. (laughs) When I was younger, this was the thing. Every Easter, they played the song, The Champion by Carmen. It's like an eight-minute song. It's all about Jesus going down to hell, and he's like having a boxing match with Satan, and Satan knocks him out, and then there's the countdown from 10, and right on one, Jesus arises, and Satan's all surprised. It's a fun song, but it has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. Satan didn't go, or Jesus didn't go to hell to fight Satan. Satan didn't knock him out and think he'd won, and oh, and then surprise. That's not how it happened. Jesus said, today when I die, I'm going to paradise. If you trust in me, when you die, you're going to paradise, right? Let's look at another phrase that Jesus said from the cross. You guys who are in John 19, I need someone to read verse 30 for me. Verse 30, John 19, verse 30. Perfect. So those three words right in the middle, what the words Jesus says on the cross is the, what I think are the three most beautiful words from Jesus on the cross. They are what? It is finished. It is finished. He didn't, he, he didn't have any more work to do. There was nothing left. He didn't get most of the work done on the cross. And then let me run down to hell and steal the keys to the gates of hell from Satan. Or let me go down there and have that fight. Or let me go down there and do anything like that. He said, it is finished. That was it. His work on the cross accomplished everything that needed to be done for salvation. So everybody, if you will, turn with me to our key text for this evening. We're going to go to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 21 through 25 together tonight. So 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. So if you're thinking about those last two verses that I just read to you, we just heard read, and you're thinking about the phrase, he descended into hell, you're going, well, wait a second, if you're telling me Christ did not go to hell, why are we 
saying that? Why did you and Pastor Isaac leave that in there? Why week after week have we been saying that we believe Jesus was suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, he died, he was buried, and that he descended into hell? Well, let's look at the passage in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25, and let me explain a little bit more about what Jesus endured on the cross and what he did for us there. So if you have the text, you can follow along. I'm reading from the ESV version, the English Standard Version of the Bible. Verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, verses 21 through 23 talk about Jesus being an example to us, and it's going to help us apply this to situations in our life. We're going to come back to that in a couple minutes, but I want to dig in first on verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What Jesus endured on the cross was physical torment and torture. Crucifixion was so painful and humiliating and disgraceful that as Rome perfected crucifixion, they developed a new word to describe what a person would experience on the cross. The word that they came up with that that translates into English today is excruciating. Excruciating. It literally meant out of the cross or from the cross. So when they described something as excruciating... It meant, think about watching someone die on a cross, and that's what we're talking about. It was, it was developed to describe this horrible experience that was suffered by people who were killed in this way. You've probably used that word to describe something very painful or very intense in your life, right? It developed, this word exists because of how horrible crucifixion was. Crucifixion, see, it was designed to be so painful and humiliating and intense that it would deter rebellion. This wasn't the most effective way to kill somebody. You can kill them in faster ways. And if you're going to kill a whole bunch of people, you could execute them much quicker by different means. But crucifixion, the Romans started to to, uh, perfect this method because they wanted to kill rebels or people who they thought were threats to the empire in a way that would make people watching that think twice about following that person. So this was a public display. It was slow and it was agonizing and it was incredibly painful. If you were hung on a cross, it's because you were being made an example to deter people from following after you. But what makes the cross of Jesus Christ incredible for us is not just this physical pain that he endured. See, Jesus isn't the only person to have died on the cross. He's not even the first person to have died on a cross. His physical suffering was immense. If you read in the Gospels, you can hear about the beatings that they gave Jesus before they even got him to the cross and hung him there. They beat him so severely. He was disfigured so much that he barely even looked like Jesus anymore. 
They beat him so much. The, the idea behind the severity of these beatings was that if we beat him this much, he's practically dead as it is, and we won't have to go through the process of hanging him on the cross. We're going to beat him so much that all these people who want him to die, they'll see how messed up he is, and they'll just, okay, that's enough, and they'll walk away. But he goes through all those beatings, and then he goes to the cross, and he's hung on the cross to be humiliated as an example to everyone who's been listening to Jesus' teaching to try and keep them from following after him. But the physical pain of Jesus on the cross is not why the cross is so significant to us. It's not the physical side that matters so much to us. It's what Jesus was doing for us spiritually. So last week, Pastor Isaac taught from 1 Corinthians 15, right? There it says that Christ died, and it gives a reason. Christ died for our sins. That's what makes the difference for you and I today. It's not that some guy suffered a lot of pain and died on a cross. It was but Jesus suffered physically on a cross because spiritually he was taking all of our sins upon himself on the cross. He was going to pay the punishment and suffer the wrath of God for all of our sins. That's what makes the cross so significant to us. He was paying the debt that you and I owe to God. He was suffering the spiritual wrath that you and I deserve. That wrath that you and I earn for ourselves is called hell. It's the just, righteous, full, eternal punishment for every single sin that you and I have ever committed. And you and I, apart from Christ, will endure this hell, this wrath of God for our sins in a physical, literal place called hell. We will be punished by God for our sins when we die if we do not find ourselves in Christ. So Pastor Isaac and I chose to leave this line of the Apostles' Creed in here so that tonight we would get the chance, all of us in this room, to think about the depth of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. Every single sin that his people have committed, every lie, every half-truth, every lustful thought, every angry word, every moment of idolatry where we love something more than we love God, every perversion, every twisted action, every wrong desire, and every evil thought, all of that is put upon Christ on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Let the weight of that sink in for a minute. I mean, think about some of the people that we read about in the Bible. Let's just think about them for just a moment and their own sins. So King David, for example, you're familiar with this story, right? He has an affair with another man's wife. He gets scared that they're going to find out about this because she gets pregnant. And so he has the guy killed. Then he marries the woman so they can lie about the baby that she's going to have and say, oh, no, that's mine. I'm, I'm, it, no big deal. David's a hypocrite because Nathan shows up and tells him a story about a guy who does something just like that. And David, instead of admitting his fault, instead of confessing and repenting, says, that's ridiculous. I'll kill that guy. He's a horrible person. Bring him before me. And Nathan has to say, it's you. This story I'm telling you, that's you. It takes him being called out before he eventually repents. He doesn't come to God for forgiveness until there's no other option. But Jesus died for David's sins. Right? Think about Abraham, another guy we read about in the Bible. One of my 
favorite stories, my favorite parts of Abraham's life is in Genesis 20. There Abraham is traveling and he's afraid of the king of the area they're going into. His name's Abimelech. And he knows Abimelech really likes beautiful women and my wife Sarah is a beautiful woman. And so he's afraid Abimelech's going to kill him and take her as his own wife. And so he says, hey, I got this plan. I think I can keep us both alive. Here's what we're going to do. Um, let's lie and pretend you're my sister, not my wife. And then the guy is not going to kill me and he just, you know, we'll be fine. And so for some reason she goes along with it. I don't understand how that works, but she goes along with it. He, uh, the king takes Sarah into his harem, and there's no, there's no out plan here. Right? That's what's funny to me with Abraham. He's not like, hey, let's lie, we'll pretend, and we'll sneak away in the middle of the night. Nope. He's just like, let's lie, and then we'll just live here. I don't know. Like, it's really weird. But God shows up in a dream to Abimelech and says, hey, I'm going to kill you because you've taken Abraham's uh, wife for your own. And he's like, what? I have no idea. He freaks out. He repents, and turns Sarah back over to Abraham and sends them on their way and says, you know, you, you, what are you doing? You're crazy. You're trying to kill me. That's not how the Bible reads. But um, it's in Genesis 20. You go read the whole story. Here's the, here's the crazy thing to me. This is the second time Abraham does this. This exact same thing. In Genesis 12, you read the same thing. G, uh, Abraham does this with Pharaoh there. Just lies and has no escape plan and just says, oh, here we go. The problem with this is, obviously lying's wrong, right? The, the root issue, though, is that, that Abraham's not trusting God. God's told him, I'm going to give you a son. You and Sarah, you're going to have a son. And he can't believe the promise. He just keeps trying to do things on his own. He keeps lying. He keeps disbelieving God. And despite all of that, we learn in the New Testament, Jesus died for all of Abraham's sins. Right? Paul oversees the murder of Christians. Matthew is a tax collector who's, who's literally stealing from his fellow citizens. Peter denies even knowing Jesus. And in all, the midst of all of that, we learn Jesus died for their sins. You, tonight, can think about dozens of sins in your own life, right? I mean, without digging too deep, you can think about times you lied, didn't tell the truth, angry thoughts, lustful thoughts, right? It's all part of the, our lives. It's, we, we can know this if we just do a little bit of thinking. And what we find here is Jesus died for our sins. Jesus endured hell, the wrath of God that you and I deserve he suffered the weight, the punishment of all of the sins of his people on the cross. Jesus endured hell for us. When we say each week as we recite the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell, we mean Christ endured hell for us. He took all of the punishment, all of the wrath, all of the suffering for his people's sins upon himself while on the cross. If you listen, again, to the word of God in 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep. Jesus took our sins upon himself to set us free from the punishment that we deserve for sin so that, that he could suffer wounds so that we could be healed and made whole and healed from our sins. We are not righteous, holy, we're not good on our own. We are lost sinners. We're bound for and we're deserving of hell. That's where we are naturally apart from God. The gospel is what Jesus did for us in that situation. Peter is citing Isaiah 53 here. If you're familiar with that great passage as we read it, you may have already made this connection. If you're not, let me, let me show you something from the book of Isaiah written 700 years before Jesus is even born. There's a prophecy given describing 
what the Savior will be like. If you see it on the screen there, Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as a one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not, but surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus was crushed by God for our sins. He descended into hell, as it were, because you and I deserve hell as the punishment for our sins. This is such a vivid description of what Jesus endured for his people. But we have incredible news following on the death of Christ as well. As amazing as it is that Jesus died for the sins of his people, he's making a way for them to be saved. Here's the next part of the creed. On the third day, he rose again. See, Jesus was crushed upon the cross. He died for our sins. He endured hell for us, but he conquered all of that and he rose again. Jesus proved definitively that he is God. He has power over sin, over death, and over hell. He absorbed all of the wrath that we deserve, all of the eternal punishment that we would have to pay in himself, and three days later he rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the best news that could follow Jesus Christ died for our sins. Think about what that means for us today. If he rose from the dead, he is alive. We can talk with him. We can hear from him. We can have a relationship with him. We're told over and over in the New Testament that if we believe in Christ, if we follow after him, then he's changing us and making us new. We're given the ability and the calling to follow after him, to become like him. He works in us and he changes us because he is alive today. So look back at the first few verses of 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We are called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Here's the thing. The Bible is really clear that we're going to suffer in this life. And that might sound like bad news to you if the Bible's true, and it is. But really, this is good news because here's what it means. God knows the real world. I mean, all of us experience suffering and trials and hardships and pain in our lives, right? I mean, is there anyone in this room who would put your hand up and say, nope, no suffering, no pain, nothing hard, my life is perfect? None of us would say that. 
We all suffer. We all go through trials. We all go through hard times. But what we find is if we're trusting in Christ, even though we're going to suffer in this life, we will not suffer in our death. That's what Peter's getting at in this whole letter. That's the big idea of his letter. He's saying, hey, there's good news. God knows we'll suffer, and Christ can relate to us in our sufferings, and he took the punishment of hell for his people, so you don't have to face that. You might feel like you're going through hell right now. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that because we're in church and because you guys, most of you, I know you, I know your families, I I know your lives are difficult. They're complicated. You're going through hard times. I'm I'm not sitting back thinking, man, you guys are great kids who have perfect lives and everything is easy. It's not. I know that. God knows that. This good news for you today is he's saying, I know what life is like. I know what's real and I have responded to all of that. I've got something for you in the midst of the hard times. This is as bad as it gets if you're a Christian. When we die and we go on to the next, we're not going to go to hell. We're not going to suffer God's wrath. Christ suffered. He died so that we get to go to paradise. He endured so he can understand what we're going through. Your sufferings now, your trials now, your hardships now, they're real. I'm not going to downplay them and say, hey, don't, don't, it's not a big deal. Just, you know, ignore it, move on. No, they're real and they're tough. And Jesus knows that too. He suffered too. He suffered for every single sin that you commit. I mean, he paid the debt, the, the debt that you're not paying. He, he, he's the one who covers that so he can empathize with you. He can understand. He endured the suffering and he conquered it so that you can come to him and find in him one who understands. The gospel is that Jesus went further than you. He suffered more than you. He paid for your sins so you don't have to do that. And if you place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ and his death covers all of your sins. He takes your sins away. And when you leave this life, you get to go to be with him. Where? Hell? No. Paradise. You don't have to descend into hell and suffer for your own sins because Jesus has paid your debt. Pastor Matt Chandler, a pastor down in the Dallas area, says it this way. You are not getting a God in Jesus who's sitting up in heaven while you are suffering saying, I'm completely sovereign, just deal with it. We're getting a God who is fully sovereign, who has power over everything, and who fully empathizes with us. He never says, yep, I see that, that's happening right there, you know, you got to deal. He says, I know, I suffered like that too. Come to me Tell me about it. I know. That's the God we have in Jesus. Jesus invites us to come to him. Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today so you can come to him with all the hardships, all the trials, all your sufferings, all your pains, and you can come and give it all to him. You can share every stress, every burden, every suffering, and he says, I know He endured those same sufferings. He was victorious over sin. He was strong enough so you don't have to be. You can come to Jesus, you can lean into him, and you can trust him, and you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have all the right answers. You don't have to have it all together in your life. You can come to him because he's perfect. He earned it. You get to be weak, broken. You get to struggle and put your faith and trust in him. I know Pastor Isaac's been quoting J.C. Ryle to you uh, quite a bit over the last several weeks. That name's familiar to you? Yes? Hope so. (laughs) 
No? Well, that's my fault. I actually bought um, him his first J.C. Ryle book. We've been reading it together, so I'll take the blame. If you're like, I'm sick of J.C. Ryle, you can blame it on me. We've been reading one of his books together, and I want to give you another quote from him tonight. It, re- it relates to what we're talking about as we get ready to worship Jesus here. Ryle says this, Do you want to be holy? Do you want to become a new creature? Then you must begin with Christ. You will do nothing at all and you will make no progress at all until you feel your sin and your weakness and you flee to Jesus. He is the root and the beginning of all holiness. And the way to be holy is to come to Jesus by faith and be joined to him. If you want holiness, if you want to be saved from your sins, if you want to be the the person that God's created you and designed you to be, then you have to begin with Christ. You have to start with feeling the weight of your sin and then going to Christ and finding him to be one who understands. He died for our sins. We have to look and see that he suffered for us, that he was crushed and that he endured hell for his people. The only way to salvation is to go to Christ. The only solution to your problems, your stress, your hardships is to go to Christ. So we're going to pray and then we're going to worship our risen Savior, the one who suffered for us, the one who endured hell for us, the one who died for our sins and the one who rose again from the dead and today understands everything you're going through. Is a God that you can come to in any moment with any problem, with any trial and find one who loves you just where you are. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. If you're not already a part of the ET family, we invite you to join us on Wednesday nights. For more information, visit etchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon.